0: Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I go off on one. My name is Niall, and today we will be looking at The Flea by John Donne. I'm not going to give too much background. I think there's plenty we can wean from this poem from the first reading. But I will say a little something um, that is that the poem is obviously it was written In the early 17th century, um, in the late Renaissance, aspects of it might still be a little bit alien to us, um, a little bit strange. So this is my way of just saying you don't have to understand all of this on the first reading. The first reading is simply the flyover where we're checking the terrain. The first reading is when we're saying hello to a poem before we get into a deeper, more detailed conversation with it afterwards. The first reading is just when we look at the bits that we might want to really delve deep into and the other bits that we can just say, yeah, we understand that right away. And so that's how we're going to do it. And I think this is the best way of reading a lot of old poems, just to to read it out first, reading it aloud, especially if you're able to read any kind of poem aloud, I think you'll get more from it. And once we read it aloud, that's when we can go back to the bits we want to check out. Maybe we didn't understand some segments of the poem and we can look at those segments of the poem. Maybe there's something quite compelling about other segments of a poem where we feel that we understood it, but then on a second reading we might feel that, that something else is being said or implied at the same time. It's all the delight of reading a poem, and I just really want to get straight into this one. The Flea by John Donne Mark but this flea, and mark in this, how little that which thou denies me is. It sucked me first, and now sucks thee, And in this flea our two bloods mingled be. Thou know'st that this cannot be said, A sin, nor shame, nor loss of maidenhead, Yet this enjoys before it woo, And pampered swells with one blood made of two, And this, alas, is more than we would do. Oh, stay, three lives in one flea's spare, Where we almost nay more than married are, This flea is you and I, And this our marriage bed, And marriage temple is. Though parents grudge, And you we are met, And cloistered in these living walls of jet. Though use make you apt to kill me, Let not to that self-murder added be, And sacrilege, three sins in killing three. Cruel and sudden, hast thou since purpled thy nail in blood of innocence, wherein could this flea guilty be except in that drop which it sucked from thee? yet thou triumph'st and save at thou findst not thyself nor me the weaker now tis true then learn how false fears be just so much honour when thou yieldst to me will waste as this flea's death took life from thee. So that was The Flea by John Donne. So let's just do what we normally do after the first reading and get to that illustrious beast, the gist. We're going to get to the gist of The Flea. Each stanza alternates the argument a little bit. But the gist of the poem is basically this, that the speaker, we could call it John Donne if we like, but the speaker seems to be alone in a bedroom with a young lady and the lady does not seem to want to follow through with the amorous intentions of the male speaker and so the male speaker points out that they have both been bitten by a flea and that their blood has mingled come together within this flea so in the sense of this flea biting both of them maybe they've both got marks on their skin that's how they found this out fresh flea bites and maybe somehow they found the offending flea as well because he's saying look at this flea but the flea has bitten both of them the flea is therefore full of both of their blood and in that sense they are already together so so he's saying oh look we're already together This flea has, has, without even asking, without even wooing, this flea has already taken both of our bloods and mingled them. So what does it matter? Why does this flea get to experience the joy of both of our bloods mingling together? And it being nothing to us as well, these flea bites, but we cannot enjoy each other in the same way as the flea has just enjoyed us. Um, He goes on to say in, in the next verse, he goes on to say that they are quite literally married now. The flea has bitten them, has taken both their bloods, put them together. They are married. This is now the marriage bed. This is the marriage temple. This is the ceremony. The flea is almost taking up the role of priests. And so even though uh, the woman does uh, disagrees with them taking things to the next step, and even though parents certainly disagree with it, he's already saying, well, it's happened. It's already happened. The flea's bitten both of us. Uh, we, we end the sec- second stanza with the, the, the intimation that this woman has decided to uh, threaten to kill the flea, which is a nice way of sort of upping the argument. Oh, God, we're married in this flea, so I, I I must I must give way to your amorous intentions because this flea has bitten both of us. Okay, what if I just squash this flea with my finger? What will happen then? To which Dun initially says, well, you won't just be killing a flea. You'll be killing the three of us. Both of our bloods are in this flea. And you're going to be uh, killing the flea as well, so that's not just the murder of a flea, that's the the murder of you and the murder of me too. That's a terrible sin. That is that is heresy. Uh, three sins in killing three. The fi- the final stanza makes me giggle because cause she has she has since decided yeah that okay I'm killing three of us am I okay look splat I've just killed the flea, I felt nothing. So firstly, he begins this by by almost perhaps protesting a bit too much, feeling mortified that she has purpled her nail in the blood of innocence. Um, And so um, he he is sort of saying, oh, my goodness, you've committed this great, great crime, even I told you not to. She responds, well, I'm not weaker now. I killed this flea and um, I felt nothing. You felt nothing. And then this is interesting. This is where he turns it all on its head. So all this time he's saying, look, we might as well we might as well go to bed together because the flea's already bitten both of us and our blood has mingled. If our blood has mingled already, might as well just go that extra bit and enjoy mingling our blood together. Um, then there is the intimation um, after that that uh, the, the flea will therefore be killed. She wants to kill the flea. Now she has killed the flea and, and pointed out that but then no one suffered from it. The flea doesn't even seem to have suffered. No one suffered. All of this drama was for nothing to which he replies oh yeah you felt absolutely nothing well if we go to bed together it'll be the same if killing the flea is nothing then then all the shame of of us bringing our blood together is also nothing if that flea can bite us swell with blood mingle our blood and then be destroyed then like if thou yields to me um your honor um won't waste either um it will be nothing so he, he changes his argument quite a bit. It's almost as if the, the logic of the argument is ultimately, um, uh, you should just come to bed with me. And he will just change that, whatever the circumstances are. That is pretty much the gist of the poem. Um, let's look a little bit of a historical background. And then we'll look a little bit at what we call the metaphysical conceit at work within the poem. So the, the, the metaphysical poets were, they were probably writing their poems, they were contemporaries of Shakespeare, and a lot of the other um, Spencer, and a lot of the other Renaissance poets. Um, but they wrote a quite distinctly different style of poetry. And the point in which their style differs is in their use of imagery. I think that's the the most important thing and perhaps the most controversial thing in their sense. Um, In the poetry that was written before this, if we go back to that idea of the courtly tradition of the sonnet, for instance, there was no such thing as cliché there tended to be traditions with regard to imagery. So if a metaphor or imagery is used in a poem, it would often follow a a tradition, an accepted standard of the imagery. So as I spoke a couple of podcasts ago about the blazon, the blazon was this family of images that we would use to describe female beauty. Um, A family of images that normally would describe the beauty of a a pale and fair woman. With the blazon, teeth would be like pearls. Lips would be like uh, roses, red roses. Uh, Hair would be golden twine. And eyes would be like shining suns. And the ingeniousness of the poems that used the blazon, the sonnets that used the blazon, were not the idea of originality of startling originality it would be how they took these accepted standards these accepted tropes and did a slightly different spin on them revealed their wit in how they could take something so well worn and make it sound new again now the difference between this and what the metaphysical poets were doing so when i speak about the metaphysical poets i mean poets such as um george herbert john dunn andrew marvell and a few others, um, they they used imagery in a much more, let's say, fast and loose fashion. They cast aside um, these accepted ideas of metaphor, these traditions of metaphor, and found their own striking images uh, to illustrate something with instead. Um, in a, in in another in another John Donne poem, a Valediction, forbidding mourning. John Donne is parting with his wife and she's making a bit of a fuss and he's saying, please don't make such a fuss in public. And in order to illustrate their togetherness, he uses the metaphor of a set of drawing compasses, the ones that we pull apart and we draw a circle with. So how they start off together, but how when the circle is drawn um they are pulled apart and one end sort of draws the circle at the far end, but the other one stays in place, and it is the staying in place that allows the other end of a compass to draw a full circle. Um, now that is a strange image. It has completely departed from the accepted family of images that are used in the poetry beforehand. And similarly In the flea, (laughs) we we get this image of a flea as many different things. So the flea that has just the flea that has just bitten John Donne and his lover is now this vessel that carries their blood and it becomes a a symbol of marriage. It becomes a symbol of togetherness. And this flea also becomes um, a symbol of, of how meaningless in the end and how forgettable and how completely um, non injurious to honor the act of love making outside of wedlock is it's a strange image you have to say that firstly i mean we have to sort of ask the question who would try and seduce someone else by saying hey we've just been bitten by a flea let's let's look at that flea and muse on that flea and on looking at this flea we will both in understanding this flea in what it has done and how our lives relate to the lives of this flea we will be completely amorous it doesn't seem to to succeed in that at all Uh, the poem isn't very seductive in that sense The poem isn't necessarily setting the blood racing with imagery that would perhaps make us feel more sensuous. um, Imagery that put us more in the mood. He's not doing a Barry White in this poem. Um, If anything, the the function of the flea is to use a very strange logic to say that that, uh, making love together will not be a sin. But it is not this great thing that you build it up to be. It really is nothing. It really is a tiny little inconsequential thing. Of course, that's not what he's saying halfway. That's what he says at the end of the poem, halfway through the poem. He's he's almost venerating this flea as as a minister for the marriage between two souls, um, the mixing of two bloods. So so he he flip-flops all over the place mainly because he's trying to make it seem like it's absolutely nothing if uh, if these two people go to bed together a lot of people enjoy the metaphysical poets nowadays because of their interesting and crazy use of of imagery it fits in a lot more with the use of imagery in modern poetry at the time um John Donne only published seven or eight poems and uh, during his entire lifetime and this wasn't one of them um, but people did read this poem and they did read some of his other famous poems, like the the poem um, To the Sun Rising, where he tells off the sun in another interesting metaphysical conceit. It's a poem about the sun rising and about the sunlight blazing through the curtains and waking up him and his lover and realizing that their, their, their night is over. And he personifies the sun and um, personification in poetry is when we we address an inanimate object as if or or something that is basically not alive as something that is alive and, and something that has intentions and has a personality. So he spends the poem having a go at the sun, telling off the sun, um, calling him a, a saucy uh, pedantic wretch. If I remember, go chide schoolboys, he says. So you get all these ideas of these very strange images that, compared to the the quite conventional imagery that preceded these poets, um, it's quite startling. They weren't really writing for uh, these poems for a wide audience at the time. Um, They were pretty much writing them for each other. And they are venerated as, as great poets now, but for the generations that almost immediately followed them, they were looked down upon. Um, they were looked down upon as people that used imagery in, in a reckless and violent way. I have a few examples here. Here's an example from Samuel Johnson. So here's Johnson's assessment of metaphysical poetry, which isn't at all flattering. So Sa- Samuel Johnson was one of the sort of next generation, um, the Augustans, the uh, the poets of the Reformation, they really looked down on the metaphysical poets and actually sort of coined the name the metaphysical poets as a bit of a cuss, as a way of looking down on these poets. So here's Johnson. The metaphysical poets were men of learning and to show their learning was their whole endeavor. But unluckily, resolving to show it in rhyme instead of writing poetry, They only wrote verses, and very often such verses as stood the trial of the finger better than of the ear, for the modulation was so imperfect that they were only found to be verses by counting the syllables. The most heterogeneous ideas were yoked by violence together. Nature and art are ransacked for illustrations, comparisons and allusions. Their learning instructs, and their subtlety, surprises but the reader commonly thinks this improvement dearly bought and though he sometimes admired admires is seldom pleased the gist of that criticism is is is, is twofold um, he feels that then they, they neglect the use of proper meter and we often only understand the metrical aspect of a poem by counting the syllables with our fingers because we do not hear it with our ears so that's a that's the mark of a worse poet and according to johnson that's the difference between poetry and what we would say in a lighter sense is called verse a kind of tone deafness a lack of respect for the metrical quality of the poem the metrical quality being unstressed and stressed syllables what we've spoken about the last couple of weeks the whole dee da dee da dee da dee da dee da aspect of it um we we have another criticism from john from john dryden who um another part of the same generation of poets that followed dunn's generation of poets um he says, and this is pretty much how the, the, the metaphysical name was coined, he affects the metaphysics not only of his satires, but in his amorous verses, where nature only should reign, and perplexes the minds of the fair sex with nice speculations of philosophy, where he should engage their hearts and entertain them with the softnesses of love. So they're not just coming down on the metrical aspects of a the poem, they're really coming down on the use of imagery, and they're saying that the imagery is this idea of two things being yoked by violence together. So if we look at the flea and the use of imagery, that a flea full of blood, something that we don't immediately associate, um, with sensual enjoyment. He takes this flea and he kind of ties it. He yokes it violently. He violently ties and attached this imagery to courtship. And so he thinks uh, the, the, the the Johnson and, and Dryden say that um, oh what will happen is, yes, you've just got this very dramatic image and you've stuck it to, to the, this very dramatic concept. Um, but because there's such a big difference to them and you've brought them together, that's how people perhaps are dazzled by these poems. But this this does not this use of imagery does not satisfy people. You must use more natural imagery to satisfy the reader. All you do with this is, is you dazzle. Be easily dazzled. They bring up women, of course, so they think women are incapable of understanding philosophy, and therefore they're saying that the women are dazzled by these images. But more learned men will not be impressed by this. They can, they can, they they can see that this is not the imagery is not appropriate and and is not good for learning. And this attitude continued until the modern era, um, when certain ideas of nature. Um, And certain ideas of propriety and maybe the idea of objective quality and objective standards that have been divinely issued. A lot of these are cast aside and abandoned um, in the modern era from poets such as Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot. And so there was a bit of a revival in the 20th century of the metaphysical poets. One thing I wanted to understand when looking at this poem, was the history of reproductive science and how people thought that reproduction worked. Because I think part of what we might find strange as modern readers in this poem is the sense of blood mixing. Um, We have different modern understandings of reproductive science, and we certainly have different modern readings of mixing of bloods. Um, In a scientific sense. So I really wanted to look at historical accounts of reproduction um, because I do remember reading somewhere and I unfortunately do not remember where that the the idea of a mixing of blood was perhaps um, underlying the idea of of sexual reproduction um, in historical times. Now, one thing I found is actually in classical times um, with Greeks, actually, um, they, they believed that reproduction was caused by a kind of mingling of bloods. Um, the, so the, basically the, the male semen was seen as a very pure form of blood. And when it mixed, um, they had the evidence of menstrual blood from women. So they had this evidence that um, they felt that this was this was two bloods coming together. And these two particular types of blood coming together, that's what would create bebés. Whereas in later times, um, people seem to think the reproduction was this Russian doll thing, which is really interesting. So all your future children were already contained within each other like a little Russian doll, a very, very elaborate Russian doll. And so each one would open up to become the next, which is crazy, isn't it? So so according to people in these times, they would have believed quite literally in Adam and Eve, for instance. Well, not everyone did, but um, if Adam and Eve were accepted to be the first people, then the entire human race was already contained within them um, to slowly open up. One to become the next until the end of time, and this was actually this actually went with what we would call Calvinist theological ideas. Calvinism was an idea that where there is no human freedom, everything is already set. All the whoever is damned and whoever will be raised into heaven, it's already it was already decided at the moment God created the universe, and so this idea that we're all waiting to live our lives already there within adam and eve actually didn't threaten calvinist ideas of um, fate so i think that's quite interesting so i i do wonder if this idea of two bloods mingling maybe was a remnant of the greek idea of reproduction and that actually this idea of two bloods mingling um in, it wasn't quite as gross <laughs> in the in the understanding of it as it would be now um, that there might be perhaps a more more literal sense that when bloods mingle um, another life is made i'm not sure in a lot of ways that is pure conjecture from me even though i haven't officially gone off on one yet another little note about about john Donne, actually because somewhere along his lifetime john Donne converted to anglicanism Um, became a protestant and became a much more devout man and his amorous poems became religious poems and the interesting thing about dunn's religious poems is they're still very sensual there is an aspect to them that that um that they're still in some ways quite amorous but they're just amorous towards god instead of a young woman and he even became the dean of saint paul's cathedral he actually got off his deathbed to give a very famous sermon about death and why not to fear death and then went back to his deathbed, returned to his deathbed to die, which I find amazing. I'm sure we'll look at some of Dunn's religious poems later on because the the, the metaphysical poets weren't just a, a bunch of men that wrote rude and bawdy poems about convincing reluctant women to go to bed with them. They wrote some amazing religious poetry as well. And in many ways, that religious poetry was just as Um, adventurous and intense with its imagery um, as their amorous poetry was so in the future we will look at some of the religious poetry of John Donne and his contemporaries but for now I think I've exhausted some of the academic uh, conventions and analyses of these poems and therefore it's time for me to play a sound effect that will let you know that we're moving on and we've left the the bondage of conventional academic readings behind. And it is time for us to go off on one. <laughs> Thank you, Ric Flair. The first thing I want to touch on is how we read this poem in the context of the Me Too era. The Christmas song, Baby, It's Cold Outside, has an Im- a similar context. And it's really interesting that people have decided that 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 is no longer an appropriate Christmas song to play because the subtext of baby it's cold outside is of course a woman wants to leave somewhere where she is with a man and the man is saying baby it's cold outside basically saying no I don't want you to leave and the, the me too subtext for that particular reading of that song is that woman wants to leave and you should you should respect uh, her need to leave the place and so with with the flea we are dealing with a a similar situation in which um, a woman has said no no i really don't want to and the man is remaining insistent and not accepting her answer and I think it's right that we do feel uneasy about that particular aspect. I think when someone has said no, they mean no. And we all we all, all decent people accept this. I think there's some aspects that I think we can use to defend this poem. Um, the first one being how ridiculous this one is. <laughs> how absolutely ridiculous the concept of a flea. And a flea becoming engorged in the in the blood of two people, and him making this argument, I I feel that there's a playfulness to it, and I think in the sense that while we don't hear the voice of the amorous intended, we certainly know what her reaction is. She seems to take it in good humour, and seems to understand the ridiculousness of his argument in the sense that she says, "Okay." I've crushed the flea and I felt nothing, mate. I don't know. It seems like the woman in the poem is rising up to the task of, oh, okay, you've got this image and you're saying for the sake of argument that uh, my sense of honour will not be defiled if we come together. um, and, 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 you know, or that we have already come together within this flea and if I crush this flea, it will be murder. Well, I'm going to murder this flea. Oh, look, I'm feeling absolutely fine. you you, you get this sense of the woman in some ways as the intellectual equal of the man Um, but but I feel that the woman gives as good as she gets in this poem Um, with this ridiculous conceit that is being offered to her but would make no sane human think oh wow we've both been bitten by a flea well in the mood now I am mate Um, another thing I might go off on one about this idea of imagery And that is that um, I I can I certainly understand it when a poet just really goes for the most dramatic imagery and just tries to to bombard you with imagery. A bunch of images that don't really have much connection to each other other than that they're quite dramatic and quite vivid. And it does seem that the um, the the intent of using this kind of imagery is to dazzle and bombard the listener rather than to help reach su- help them reach some kind of understanding i have seen that but at the same time i think it's interesting that how we understand imagination has changed as well and actually the way that imagination works is to sometimes stick crazy things together and see if rationalism and reason can catch up and make something else of it perhaps the most interesting example would be um einstein dreaming about riding on a beam of light um, before he had his theory of relativity. And there was a famous saying by uh, the scientist J.B.S. Haldane, I think that's his name, who, says, um, who said something along the lines of um, reality is not just queerer than we suppose, it is queerer than we can suppose, which is certainly a gauntlet laid down on the imagination. A lot of scientific discoveries go against what we call common sense. So maybe actually using these wild and crazy images is the way to go. We now know that science, that the world uh, as uncovered by science in our day and age, not in the day of day and age of Newton, who would have been a contemporary of the Augustan poets that looked down upon the use of imagery from the metaphysical poets, that they're the ones who perhaps are the ones who are wrong now because, because they believed that, that, that nature, anything that was natural was rational. And The interesting thing is, is even though we can use rationalist means to discover what is strange about nature, nature itself is incredibly illogical at the quantum level and at other levels as well. And isn't and rationalism just doesn't seem to be part of nature's playbook at certain levels. I'm going to leave it there with the idea of the power of the imagination. I think that's how I would say it. Never, never, never hold back on your imagination. Let it fly wherever you need it to fly. It's one of the most important things we have in this day and age. Um, It's how we open up avenues of reality. Um, We are not abandoning the world when we use our imaginations. We're creating greater scope with which we can understand the world. And that's why imagination is really important. Imagination should be something that should be encouraged at schools. And we really need to teach them, on the other hand, critical thinking as well. How we can kind of deal with the products of our imagination afterwards. I think if we have those two, boundless imagination, while at the same time, a sharp capacity for critical thinking. These two put together, that's what pushes the human race forward. That's what really gets us to the places we need to get to. Thank you so much for listening. I will chat to you in a week's time. If you enjoyed this podcast, hey, why don't you listen to the others? There's two episodes brought out before this one. I think you might enjoy them too. Um, You can share it as well. You can share it. You can leave a review on iTunes if you listen to it on iTunes. Um, anything, Anything to sort of help this podcast grow. I hope I've brought some pleasure to your lug holes for the past half hour or so have a good week see you soon we'll be back next saturday morning cheers